At half past two in the afternoon on the 22nd of June, 1922, Henry Wilson was returning to his stately home in central London. The British Army Field Marshal, turned MP, had an address at 36 Eaton Place in Belgravia. Then, as now, this was the most expensive and exclusive part of the City of London. It was the place where people like Wilson lived, close to the centre of political power in Westminster. Waiting for him outside his house that day were two armed IRA men, Reginald Dunn and Joseph O'Sullivan, there to carry out one of the most significant political assassinations ever committed on British soil. According to my guest this evening, this was the Sarajevo moment for Irish history. Much like the assassination of Franz Ferdinand eight years earlier, the death of Wilson would have far-reaching consequences for this country. I'm joined now by Rona McGreevy, journalist with the Irish Times and the author of the recently published book Great Hatred, The Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson MP. Rona, you're very welcome back. Thank to you the very much, Miles. Um, now, the day that Wilson was uh, was killed, a uh, very interesting day. We will talk about that because of what he had been doing beforehand. Yeah. But his relationship with Ireland is very, very interesting. And one of the things that uh, amazed me about the book was to read that here was somebody who was born, I'd say, probably a few miles from one of the great soldiers of the Irish War of Independence, Sean McKeown. That's right. Uh, Henry Wilson was an Irishman. Uh, He was self-consciously Irish, actually. Uh, he was an Irish imperialist, an Irish unionist at a time when he wouldn't have seen any contradiction in in that in that identity. Uh, yes, he he's from Curry Grand, County Longford, which is as, as rural Ireland, southern Ireland as you can get. Uh, he's born in the same parish as uh, Sean McKeown, the uh, a generation of beforehand. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, but yeah. So, so yeah, he he is born right in the middle, really, of of nationalist Ireland, and he is this sort of. The Wilson family had this kind of unionist sort of readout in the middle of, of, of Southern Ireland, which is a very interesting uh, part of his upbringing. Um, British educated, public school education? Yeah, he would have had, he was privately educated at home by a French tutor, which was really, really important for his career development later because he becomes the chief liaison between the British and French armies during the First World War and he's fluent in French and that's a big help. But he goes to Marlborough College, which is sort of typical of Anglo-Irish of that class. He comes back to Ireland and he does the exams for Sandhurst and he fails them repeatedly <laughs> and he basically gets into the militia, to, to the Longford militia and to the Royal Irish Regiment, into the British Army and then he uh, embarks upon a very successful career as, as, a, as a, a British Army officer. How does he rise through the ranks for somebody who, as you say, failed uh, serially to get into Sandhurst? But by the time the First World War comes around, he is very, very senior and uh, ultimately becomes a field marshal. I mean, his biographer, uh, Charles Colwell, says, you know, that he had a he had a very fertile original mind, but which wasn't really uh, conducive to studying or to to writing about what are the orthodoxies in, in in military thinking at the time. He's a very original thinker. He's also a self-conscious social climber. Um, he befriends Earl Roberts in South Africa during the Boer War. Um, Roberts sort of almost like adopts him as, as a son of his own because Roberts loses his son in the Boer War. And by the 1910, uh, he's, he's director of military operations uh, for the British Army. In that sense, uh, his his most notable contribution to the start of the war is that he is charged with having 
the uh, British uh, expeditionary force ready for war on the continent of Europe, which, you know, he is talking, you know, Wilson is talking from that time period. We really, really, really have to prepare for this. Mm. But he sees the threat from Germany. Yeah, he sees the threat from Germany at that stage, whereas the British, you know, government didn't want to even contemplate such an eventuality. But he's he's, he's reconnoitring the the, the whole territory of, of northern France and Belgium, even in the years running up to the war. Where would a British expeditionary force deploy in the event of a German invasion and as it turns out you know he is bang on the money when it comes to that and he's a man very much for the logistics and we may you know we we may not think of logistics as being particularly important but as we can see with Russia in Ukraine vitally important absolutely and and this is this is you know he was a talented soldier there's no doubt about it he knew exactly how many ships were going to be needed to transport the British expeditionary force he knew the timetables of the trains that were going to take them from the port of Le Havre to uh, Amiens and then on to the various different places in fact he had already established that the British Army would deploy on the left flank of the French 5th Army. And this is exactly what happened uh, at the time. So, you know, the, the British Army, when it is when it is put into the field in 1914, is a small army, but it's very well equipped, it's very well trained, and it does have uh, an impact disproportionate to its size. And so, uh, in many ways, Wilson is credited and can take credit for having the British Expeditionary Force ready for for war in 1914. And in terms of how he is viewed by politicians, by people like Lloyd George, for example, he's not associated with the incredible losses, the the kind of the meat grinder. He's not a, a Douglas Haig, for example. No, he's not. And this is what's very interesting about Wilson. Wilson has very little... He does at one stage command a corps in the First World War, but it's only for a short period of time. Whereas basically when when Lloyd George takes over as British Prime Minister in December 1916, he is sickened to the core of his being about the slaughter that's gone on after the Somme, etc. And of course, after Passchendaele in 1917, and he actually says to Wilson, you know, you've got to get me out of this pickle here. You've really got to come up with an alternative strategy for me. So, yes, he's not tainted with, with basically service in the field in the same way that the likes of Haig and Robertson and all these generals are. So Lloyd George puts great faith in his, his advice to him. He's quite a character. I mean, if you are a nationalist, you tend to think yeah. of him uh, or, uh, yeah. in a stereotypical yeah. terms. But he was actually, he was quite personable. He could be quite personable. Absolutely. I mean, people who knew him, he was he, he was a big man. He was six foot four. Did he, he use that? Did he take yeah, advantage of Yeah, I think he did, that? yeah. And he was he was quite striking looking in the sense that he was... He wasn't a very handsome man. He was quite ugly, actually, and he had he had a big scar over his left eye. But everybody who knew him always talked about his big personality. And even I came across some video footage there of him talking to some generals in 1919. And you can see that he had this really vibrant personality. Some people talked about him as one of the best communicators they ever knew, that everywhere he went, he, was a, he would fill a room with his presence, both physically and and his personality, you know. Now, he was a, he was Irish. He made yeah. no secret of the fact that he was Irish. Yeah. He was a Southern Unionist. He was proud of being a Southern Unionist. But you describe, you say his country was the British Empire. He wasn't that fond of the English. No, he wasn't. He said that the English are never in earnest about anything and that uh, he, he felt that the English didn't really understand the depth 
didn't really understand unionism, didn't understand the desire for unionist tradition to be part of the United Kingdom. But also he felt that um, he when I, I said this country was the British Empire, I mean, he identified with the British Empire more than anything else. And it's hard to think of the British Empire as a country, but he would have thought about it at that stage as 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 he, he considered, for instance, the likes of India and Egypt to belong. I mean, he would use the term, they would belong to Britain. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, even at that stage, he was a sort of, uh, he was what I call an institutionalised imperialist. He really believed that the British Empire was a force for good in the world and that um, its enemies were the enemies of Britain. And that's how he lived his life. Now, after the passage of the Government of Ireland Act, when Stormont is established and a a, a Southern Parliament is established, which never exists, uh, essentially, he becomes a Unionist MP, but he's a lot more than that. I mean, he is essentially a military advisor to people like James Craig, for example, to the Unionist government. Well, yes. So in, in 1918, he became the chief of the Imperial General Staff, which was the highest rank in the British Army. So he's the top of the tree. He's also the British military, he's the military advisor to the cabinet, the British cabinet at that stage. So he's one of the men that wins the war as far as many people are concerned. But in 1922, his four years or so up as SIGs. And at that stage, he has become completely estranged from the British government because of its policy or what he sees as appeasement of the sort of murder gang, as he calls Sinn Féin and the IRA, whereas Lloyd George, the British government, realises, you know, that they're not just taking on the IRA, they're actually taking on the nationalist population and that there has to be a solution to this that doesn't involve coercion. So by that stage, by February 1922, he's so completely estranged, his four years are up as six, there's no chance of him being reappointed. So basically, four days after that, he is elected unopposed as the uh, Ulster Unionist MP for North Down. And in that sense, a month later, he becomes appointed as military advisor to the new Northern government of James Craig. At that stage, the the Northern government is still believes that there's a threat from the IRA. So the James Craig asks uh, Wilson to advise him on, on how to set up a suitable force that's to counter nationalist Irish nationalism. So uh, from that moment on, like Wilson is regarded as sort of public enemy number one of, of Irish nationalism. Now, on the day of the assassination, he's in Liverpool Street Station. Yes. What's he doing in Liverpool Street Station? Yeah, so he's um, he's basically a, a public figure in the UK after stepping down as, as SIGs. He's, he's going around the country unveiling memorials to the war dead. And obviously, uh, this is only four years after the war. So some of the memorials are only being unveiled. And so he's invited to unveil a memorial to the uh, Great Eastern Railway Company workers who died in the First World War, approximately 1,200 of them. It's a huge memorial and it's still in Liverpool Street Station today. So, um, you know, if you're lots of people go through Liverpool Street Station on the way to Stansted. So, you know, it's upstairs in the Booking Hall. You can see it there. So he unveils this memorial. But more importantly, the day before um, he unveils this memorial, there's a notice in the local newspapers in, in London, the evening newspaper saying that he's going to do this. It's just a paragraph. Mm. And then suddenly, you know, this a newspaper's brought into a meeting of the IRA in London at that stage in Mooney's pub in Holborn and now they realise that they know where where Wilson's going to be the following day. So, I mean, for any murder to occur, you need motive, which they had, and you need opportunity. And here was an opportunity to kill him. Uh, one of the many ironies of the book is the fact that these three men come together yeah. very, very briefly and very, very tragically. Uh, one of them is Irish. Yeah. 
the victim. Yeah, yeah. Two of them are English. Yeah, two, the of, killers. Them are, two of them are English born. They are British uh, born. I, I say that they're British born Irish nationalists, whereas Wilson is a, is an Irish born British imperialist. And that is that I think is one of the fascinating aspects of this book is is the way Irish identity is, is seen in those days. These two guys are English born and bred. They're London born. Reginald Dunn is the is the son of a British Army officer, and his grandparents are his maternal grandparents are from Monaghan. Whereas Joe Sullivan is is second generation Irish. His parents are quote unquote an old Fenian family. Um, he's one of eleven children, and his parents are from Cork. And interestingly enough, after the killing occurs, the British Home Secretary Edward Short uh, stands up in the House of Commons and says, well, I don't think there's any Irish involvement in this. We checked out the O'Sullivan family and six out of the seven of them served in the First World War, you know. And uh, he couldn't believe that that these guys would turn around then after having served in the First World War and Joe Sullivan loses a leg at Ypres, uh, that these guys would, would turn around and actually be fighting against uh, mm. Britain, where they they had fought for Britain in the First World War. Now you mentioned O'Sullivan um, ha- has a wooden leg. Uh, Reggie Dunn is was also injured, injured in yeah. the I- yeah. Irish Guards. Why would you send two disabled veterans to 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 kill somebody to kill somebody so notable? Well, that's the question that I asked myself before I started the book, and the answer to that is quite simply: they were available and they were willing, and um, they had been at the meeting in Mooney's pub in Holborn. They had volunteered to assassinate uh, Wilson. There was supposed to have been a third man, a Dennis Kelleher, who was supposed to have turned up. And what's interesting about this is I was uh, the military service pension collection files confirmed that he was supposed to have turned up. He was supposed to have turned up with a car. He didn't, for reasons best known to himself. And um, the two boys, they assassinated Wilson and then they tried to run away. And, um, you know, it's a very... It's a very built-up part of London and it's very close from their point of view, uh, unfortunately, to a a police station. So um, they're quickly apprehended. Now, they don't attempt to kill him at Liverpool Street. They know know he's going to be there. Instead, they go to his home. So that suggests a certain amount of inside information, a certain amount of pre-planning, as it were. Well, the thing is... Or would people have known exactly where uh, Wilson lived? I think think they wouldn't have... um, I think they turned up to his house in the expectation... Because they could have turned up to his house any time. Yeah, they, they could have. have to, they, they, well, they turned up to his house. I, I, I think what happened was that they simply turned up to his house, not knowing whether he would come there or not. Now, Wilson was going to go straight to the House of Commons, but he decided that he, he changed his mind. He decided that he was going to go home and change his clothes uh, because he didn't want to turn up in the House of Commons in his field marshal uniform. So he might have taken a different turn and mm. they mightn't have turned up. And it's the same with, you know, when we talk about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in, in Sarajevo. That the driver they had took a wrong him. turn. Yeah, the yeah. driver took a wrong turn. So <laughs> yeah. this guy turns up uh, Wilson, he's at home within about 40 minutes and, um, you know, unfortunately for him and unfortunately for them, you know. So, so they they shoot him. He's shot six times yeah. and he, he dies. And then they now no car to pick them up, yeah. no getaway car. Yeah. Uh, again, their history could have been entirely different had yeah. the getaway car been yeah. there. They attempt to escape on foot. A couple of policemen 
yeah. interpose themselves, are shot. But essentially, it is a uh, it is a group of civilians yeah. who corner them. Yeah, it's a mob, basically, of about 150 people. So they shoot two policemen. Uh, both of the policemen, fortunately, survive. They, they get onto a, a, a pony and trap as well. But eventually, you know, they run out of bullets and they run out of, they, you know, how can you run away from a mob with, with a wooden leg? They're hit by a truncheon in one case and by a milk bottle in the other. So eventually they're, they're apprehended and the, the police actually stop. Uh, they're safe they're from, yeah, yeah, for, for being lynched. They would have been lynched. Yeah. Uh, but, and then they're taken to George Street Police Station and, and, and charged with, with the murder of, of Wilson. And are subsequently subsequently hanged. I mean, do they make any attempt to defend themselves? They do. Uh, they, well, they, they, they make a speech uh, from the dock, which is quickly stopped by the, the judge, but it's published in the um, Irish Independent newspaper two days after they're hanged on the 10th of August, 1922, in which they give their reasons for the assassination. What was the British political reaction when news gets to Westminster, for example, that, that Henry Wilson has been assassinated? Because, you know, security was much more lax yeah. at this stage. Downing Street had been well protected yeah. during the War of That's Independence. Right, yeah. All of that protection is gone. Yes, it's all gone. So there's absolutely profound shock and quite a lot of embarrassment as well. I mean, Wilson is, he's a, he's a famous figure throughout the world. At this stage, he's part of the British delegation at the Treaty of Versailles. He's a household name in political circles. And as well as that, a lot of the politicians would know him personally. Asquith would have known him. Lloyd George would have known Austin's Chamberlain and all the rest. And so there's really profound shock at all of this. But there's also a degree of anger. You know, the British government obviously thought that when, once they had signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 19, December 1921, that they had been shot at the, Brit- mm. at the Irish problem. So um, the assassination of Wilson on the streets of London is is the first assassination of a politician in Britain since the assassination of the Prime Minister in 1812. Spencer Percival. Yeah, so there's this, this profound shock about it. And obviously there's they're spoiling for vengeance as a result of this and they want to find somebody to blame. So this is where it, it becomes particularly hairy from an Irish point of view that they blame the anti-treaty rebels in the four courts, they feel that uh, the anti-treaty rebels, ha- which have been defying the provisional government at that stage, are the ones ultimately responsible for the killing of... And this is where you see the Sarajevo moment. Yes, so I think, so what I, uh, the reason what I explain in the book is that if you look at the outbreak of the First World War, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is, is killed and Austria delivers this ultimatum to Serbia and that starts the interlocking series of alliances which brings the Europe to war within 37 days so basically if you you use that analogy Britain gives the British government gives an ultimatum to the Irish government provisional Irish government stating if you do not deal with the anti-treaty rebels in the four courts who have been there since April we will do it for you so suddenly there's literally a a figuratively a gun to the head of the Mm. provisional government and you know it's no coincidence that the civil war breaks out six days later now, the, what was the advice of the officer commanding the British forces in Ireland at that time, Neville Macready? He wasn't keen. Macready is summoned to London and he finds the cabinet, you know, spoiling for vengeance. And, you know, as particularly Churchill's talking about sending a Royal Navy flotilla to, to bomb the four courts. And he's talking about using the RAF and all the rest. And, and, and Macready says, steady on here, you know, like you just have to, you have to be rational about this. You have to think to yourself... If we do this, what we're going to do is we're going to unite the, the pro and anti-treaty factions and we're going to restart the War of Independence. And he had only 3,000 troops in, in Ireland. So 
he says like uh, uh, one of the one of the things I'm really glad I did was that I I called the British government off. I called the dogs off, so to speak. Um, and and he, he he would have felt that would have been a complete disaster had they gone back into Ireland. OK, now we come to the naughty question about who gave the order or was there even an order given? So who was d- directly responsible other than Reggie Dunn and, and Joe O'Sullivan for the for the assassination of uh, of Wilson? I've always assumed that it was a direct order from Collins and that the British cabinet got it completely wrong and wanted to blame the, the, the Four Courts Battalion. But uh, after, re- after reading the book, I'm, uh, I'm not so sure anymore. Well, uh, actually, um, I'm pretty certain and I've been strengthened in this belief by new information I've got since this edition of the book was published, which will be in the paperback this out in May, that it was ordered by Collins by on the very strong balance of probability. I mean, there are really only, hmm. there, are, uh, there are four theories. I'll go to them very quickly. The first yeah. is that Reggie Dunn and Joe Sullivan uh, acted of their own initiative in killing Wilson. I don't believe that to be the case. When I go into the book, when I state that, that there had been orders to assassinate members of the British cabinet before, that had come from uh, Collins and had come from uh, the Sinn Féin. So they understood the import of killing a figure like Wilson and they wouldn't have done it, I, I believe, without um, orders from on high. There's but there was a kind of a fatwa on Wilson, there was, which yeah. existed from, from yeah. a number so of years one of the, back. One of, the, one of the theories is that, uh, another theory that has been ventured is that there was... Uh, planned to kill Wilson before the truce and that that, that order had never been uh, rescinded. Now, I, I've dealt with that very quickly in the book. Basically, the Reggie Dunn and Joe Sullivan say the reason why they killed uh, Wilson is because of Wilson's involvement with the Northern Government, or as they call it, the Orange Terror. They hold him responsible for the pogroms in the North. So this could only have happened uh, after um, Wilson becomes an MP. So I mean, they, it's there in black and white why they killed him. They killed him because they held him responsible mm. for the the actions of the B-Specials and the actions of, of the British state forces. So uh, to me, obviously, what they're stating here is that this happened after the truce. The reasons why he was killed is for his actions after the truce mm. as opposed to beforehand. Then we we can rule out the anti-treaty side. They said if they had done it, they would have admitted to it, but they didn't do it. OK, so what, what Don and O'Sullivan, do we know what their attitude was towards the treaty, because obviously that could be crucial when it comes to they, figuring they were out, support, did the yeah. order come from the four courts, did the order come from yeah, Collins? Well, they, were trying to, they were trying to hold the IRA and London together, which had split in the same way that mm. uh, they had split in Ireland. Donald O'Sullivan were um, basically Collins loyalists, um, so they would have tried to keep the IRA together by adopting a, a neutral position, but they certainly weren't anti-treaty. They had offered their services to Collins at an earlier stage in the National Army. So I, I believe that they were pro-treaty, but at the same time, they were trying their best. And this is one of the reasons why there was this meeting in Holborn was to try and, and, and come to a common position in relation to, to the treaty. But there was an awful lot of people in the IRA in London who were very, very much anti-treaty. Certainly Reggie Dunn and Joe Sullivan weren't. Mm. weren't. But the interesting thing is, Miles, is that the killing of Wilson had nothing to do with the treaty. It had everything to do with the North. Yeah. Not not the treaty, yeah. Mm. Um, now, I, I, I like the notion of the Sarajevo moment. Yeah. It's a very interesting yeah. way of, of, of yeah. framing all of this. But maybe I could put it to you that, yes, it was. There's no doubt about yeah. it. It was the proximate cause yeah. of the civil war. Yeah. It set in chain yeah. a sequence yeah. of events that led to the, the bombardment of the four courts. 
But equally, you could say if that hadn't sparked off the civil war, something else would. Well, I deal with that in the book. Um, yes, uh, what I am what I am stating in my book is that the civil war, as it happened, wouldn't have happened without the the Wilson shooting. So, if you look at the the sequence of events from the twenty second of June to the twenty eighth, the sequence of events which ends with the provisional government borrowing British field guns is a direct result. It's not the only reason, but it's a direct result of the assassination of Wilson. Now, the question is, would the civil war have happened in any case? And The question uh, also is, would the First World War have happened in would, any case, and, even and, if France heard it? Yes, and again, I, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've addressed that subject. Yeah. I, I don't believe the First World War would have happened in any case, but for the France Ferdinand shooting. There's a stronger argument to be made that the civil war would have happened in any case. But the unfortunate timing of this is this is six days after the general election of the 16th of June. where And uh, by the 22nd of June, de Valera is still holding out some hope that, mm. that, that there'll be a, a government that's put together that will include yeah. him in it. So you don't know what's going to happen. And the other thing is people say, well, the civil war was inevitable. And I said, Really? I mean, where was the preparation that was being put in by the anti-treaty side? They had done no preparation. They had occupied the forecourts, but they had done no preparations at all for a civil war. And neither actually really had the provisional government. So I would caution against this idea that the civil war was inevitable. Some people say it was, some people say it wouldn't be, but I don't think it was ever uh, inevitable. Well, it's something we can discuss and something we can debate until the cows come yeah. home. But the fact is, it well, did happen and this yeah, is why it happened. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, in that sense, I mean, it, it wasn't was the cause. I mean, the Wilson shooting was not the cause yeah. of the civil war, but it was the... It, it was, was the, the proximate cause. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, the yeah, it was the spark, yeah. if you like. Anyway, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's wonderfully written. It's called Great Hatred, The Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, MP, published by Faber and Faber. The author is my guest, Rona McGreevy. Rona, thanks for joining us on The History Show. Thank you for having me, Miles. After the break, we look at one of history's most tenacious conspiracy theories and, specifically, the man who caused a sensation in 19th century aflone when he visited the town and proclaimed, The Earth is flat. Stay with us.